37 years ago, this style of church in Kokomo was unheard of. But as people came, uh, they really identified with church that made sense to them, teaching they could understand, music that they could relate to. The growth started um, to take place when the people that were attending got so excited about what was happening that they literally went out and started to invite and bring their friends to it. Lives start getting transformed and then those stories start getting told and the people who are finding Christ for the first time started bringing their friends and their family members. When I first heard that Orphe Church uh, had plans to launch a church in Kokomo, I was just incredibly thrilled. And on Easter Sunday, 2018, April 1st, we had our first Sunday in Kokomo and God uh, just showed up in a huge way. Um, we filled that place up and uh, we knew that God uh, was on the move, but that he was just getting started. And we really were believing that he had something bigger for us and he had plans that we couldn't even imagine. And it was to merge with another awesome church in Kokomo, which was Oak Brook Church. On the other side of the adoption now, one of the things that I enjoy the most about this new reality is seeing some of the dreams that we had back when we were Oak Brook now uh, coming a reality. In the two years since we've merged, we were able to take our debt here in Kokomo from $4 million down to $1 million. And through the generosity of the people of Northview, and specifically through our Big Give weekend of our first initiative, we were able to pay down that last million dollars, and we are officially debt-free here in Howard County to continue our awesome ministry. Is that not outstanding? I just think that is outstanding. And shout out to all of our campuses and specifically to our Kokomo campus. Way to go, guys. And I, I just love what God is doing in Kokomo. I love, one, the legacy of the Malin family. Uh, Pastor Mark Malin and his family planted this church well over 30 years ago. And I do believe the, the true measurement of a leader when it comes to success isn't how big their head gets but how big their heart gets. And to be at a place with three campuses and a campground and to have the heart so big for the local church to say, I think we're better together. And for Oak Brook to merge with Northview, I just think that takes rare leadership, <laughs> rare leadership. And then to see what Pastor Joe and his team out at Kokomo have done. And if you've ever been around the Kokomo team, they are just a vibrant, life-giving team. They're fun to be around. And so Kokomo, we, we love you guys. We're proud of you. And we pray that you guys are celebrating this weekend. We are debt-free at that location. And that is just outstanding. So for those of you who are participating in the first give, uh, with the, the first initiative, uh, we just continue to encourage you. Let's just all play our part and see what God can do in and through our resources. One of our goals is by 2025 for us as a church to be completely debt-free across all of our locations. And I believe we're going to do it and we're going to see God be lifted up through it all. Amen. And so we are excited about that. And we are excited because it is baptism weekend, which without a doubt for me, yeah, you can go ahead and celebrate that. 
Uh, for some of you, you may not like this, uh, but I like baptism weekends far more than Easter, far more than Christmas, far more than all these other special weekends, which are super important. I, I just love baptism weekends. And here's why. As a church, we not only exist to declare the gospel, but we exist to demonstrate the gospel. And the best sermon you're going to hear today isn't anything I say, but what you get to see. Sometimes the best message, or sometimes even the only Bible people will read is your life that you're living. And sometimes it's getting to observe what God is doing in and through other people's lives that really cements and solidifies someone else's faith. And so you guys are going to get to see uh, just individuals go public in their faith. If you're new to church, uh, let me give you some handles when it comes to baptism so you know what we are about to do here as a church. One, as a follower of Christ, there's no doubt our faith is to be personal. But it was never meant to be private. This is something that we live out loud and we live it boldly and we stand, you know, confident in who we are following and the Savior that we've anchored our life to. That baptism is a public proclamation of an inner transformation. Essentially, it is saying, hey, just so everybody knows, I'm with Jesus. We like to say that baptism is the wedding ring of the Christian faith. It's just standing before family and friends and coworkers, even strangers, and just letting everyone know my devotion, my adoration is to this Jesus. You know, baptism is for your association, not for your assurance. That's critical because it's understanding that baptism, sure, it's symbolic, but it was never meant to be superstitious. Baptism is a burial, not a bath. What you're going to witness today isn't individuals getting up here, rinsing something off. You're going to see individuals standing before you declaring boldly, hey, the old me has been put to rest and I stand anew in Christ. It is a burial, not a bath. And so we, we celebrate and we could not be proud, more proud of everyone at all of our campuses who is being baptized. Uh, way to go. Your church celebrates you and we are proud of every single one of you. And we are going to, we're going to cover some ground today. Hopefully you brought some running shoes because we're going we're gonna to cover some ground in today's conversation. And it does have me thinking about, maybe this has happened to you. Have you ever been, say, at like a coffee shop and you're waiting in line and it takes forever for you to get to the counter and you're one person away from the, the counter and you find out that the person in front of you who's been waiting in line with you has not once considered what they're going to order and now they get to the counter and they're like, I don't even know. And it's the first time they look at the menu. And it's frustrating. It's like, guys, it's a coffee shop. They, they serve coffee here. So do you want a mocha? Do you want a latte? Do you want an Americano? Right? Do you want it just straight black? Do you want it iced? Do you want it hot? They serve coffee here. And I've, maybe I'm an impatient person, but I find myself sometimes amazed by how many people come to the counter not knowing what they're going to order. I'm also amazed how many people show up to church not knowing what they're expecting either. You should know we only offer one thing here at this church. And that is Jesus Christ, Christ crucified and resurrected. That's all we offer. And that may come in the form of joy for some of you. That may come in the form of peace or strength, maybe wisdom, hope, grace. However Jesus uh, works his way in and through your life, we are just thrilled that you are here. And we pray that you just open your heart and that you open your mind because you will discover a Jesus who is unparalleled. There is none like him. Amen. We obsess over this Jesus, and so we're glad that you are here. And 
Today we're going to look at something in Scripture. Now, i got to tell you, we're going to cover two chapters, which is really problematic for me as a preacher. If I preach off of four to five verses, I can go for an hour. Today we're going to go two chapters. So we might be here till Tuesday. Um, <laughs> but you have to take these two together. We're going to look at John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. And here's what you have to understand. What we sometimes take for granted as the Bible, uh, well, I mean, how it came together is really astonishing. The miracle of the Bible is super impressive. How all these ancient scrolls were discovered over time and archaeologists and historians and just leading academics from around the world would, would put together these scrolls and this library of 66 books that we know as the Bible. And so what you find is some of these scrolls showed up at different times. So we first had John chapter 7 before we had John chapter 8. And you should know that when they found the scrolls for John chapter 8, there was a debate. Where does this belong in Scripture? Some said maybe it belongs in Luke. But what most agreed upon, and it's the reason why you find it in John chapter 8, is most people think, hey, this goes with this. In fact, there's a, uh, the popular opinion is John chapter 8 is technically one big chapter with John chapter 7. Basically, the leading scholars out there, though there is still some conversation, would say, hey, this goes with that. In fact, if you don't understand chapter 7, you may not fully grasp chapter 8. That's what, if you were to geek out over commentary, that's what you would find. And so you have to understand the tension that is in John chapter 7. And here's the tension in John chapter 7. It says to us, that there was much muttering about him among the people. So here's what you have to understand as we jump into this. Jesus is getting his ministry off the ground. He's beginning to inaugurate the kingdom of God, his values and his mission and his purpose. And it's beginning to gain some traction. People are curious about Jesus. He's done some miracles. And people are leaning into his teaching. And what you find is in the community around him, it says there was much muttering. There's all these conversations taking place around Jesus. And there's all these different opinions. For starters, his brothers in chapter 4 and 5, they say to Jesus, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. They couldn't understand. Hey, if you're the son of God, the savior of the world, why are you being so humble about it? Why don't you go out there and show yourself off? And they couldn't understand his humble, subversive approach to redeeming the world. In other words, they're saying, prove it. They go on to say, since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And check out what verse 5 says. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So part of the muttering was his own family and his brothers. And essentially what they were saying about Jesus is you're a phony. If you are who you say you are, prove it. John chapter 12, 7 verse 12, it also tells us this in the same uh, text. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Other versions say he is a deceitful and deceiving man. So, I mean, you have these issues stockpiling around Jesus. There's this whole conversation. He's a phony. He's deceitful. He's a bad leader. It goes on to say, that Jesus, in the tension of this community of people, he asked them this question, hey, why are you trying to kill me? I mean, have you ever asked somebody that? I mean,
mean, Jesus literally turns to a group of people. Hey, why are you trying to kill me? And look how they respond to the question. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. I mean, so some thought he was a phony. Some thought he was a bad leader, that he was deceitful. Others thought that he was demon-possessed. And what's amazing to me is this conversation, it just seems so casual. Jesus is just going about his business and he turns to a group of people who are muttering about him. And he says, hey, why are you trying to kill me? They're like, well, because you're demon-possessed. And have you ever discovered that we are fluent in the language of hatred? You ever found that? Like, I mean, we can have hate-filled conversations like they're nothing. In fact, you know, much of our figures of speeches, uh, figures of speech are hate-related. Oh, we hate the patriots, right? And I, I say these same things as well. Um, but it's amazing how effortless it is for us to place hatred in our language. And so there's this, there's this tension around Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even really respond to it. He only addresses one thing. And he turns to them and he says, guys, Moses gave you circumcision. Now here's what circumcision is. It's when you go to the doctor and the doctor, no, nah, we won't even go there. <laughs> Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Check this out. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. You, you guys, I've been trying this theory out for the last couple months. You know, we schedule these series out in advance. And so about, about six to eight weeks ago, I knew I was gonna be preaching on this text. And so I started testing this theory. And I'm not gonna put you on the spot because I don't wanna embarrass anybody. But I was going around, I was asking groups of people, hey, which would you rather hear me preach about? A sermon called Jesus is demon possessed or Jesus heals another man. And guys, unanimously, everybody's like, oh, I wanna hear the sermon, Jesus is demon possessed. And I told him, actually, it's the same sermon, just a different title. The point being, something in our nature is drawn to the flare, right? I wanna hear the crazy story. I wanna hear about the dysfunction. Have you ever found that you're enticed by the same type of headlines? Something in our nature gravitates towards this. But Jesus, he turns to this group of people who is plotting his murder. He says, why are you guys trying to kill me? And then he speaks to the heart of the issue. And the issue was surrounding the Sabbath. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And there's a group of people so propped up on religion, they thought that was deserving of death. See, what you find in Scripture, and still what you will find in, in churches to this day, is a poor understanding and a distinction between theology and ministry. Guys, this will serve you well, I promise you. You will be a healthy contributor to any community of faith that you're a part of if you understand this well. See, what you have to understand is most of Jesus' tension was between him and the Pharisees. But what's amazing is if you were to go down the list of doctrinal items and theology, you guys, Jesus and the Pharisees basically had the same theology. I mean, these two agreed on almost everything. The issue wasn't their theology. 
The issue was their ministry. They looked at how Jesus was going about applying his theology and it was creating some frustration. It was even creating some confusion. Why is he doing such a thing? Why is he spending time with sinners and tax collectors? And why does he befriend the type of people that he does? And they couldn't understand his ministry. If we're not careful, we fall into the same type of thing where we debate ministry over theology. I don't know what your journey is like, but I am the byproduct of a really bizarre and pretty unique ministry. Most of you have heard my story as a freshman in college. We went to Panama City Beach, Florida for spring break. Me and my teammates, we loaded up in the cars and we drove to, to Florida for spring break because back then MTV would have these huge parties on the beach. And they'd throw these big parties and it was, you know, spring break. And so we do the same. And we drive down there to celebrate the party and to act recklessly with all these other spring breakers. One night I come walking out of a club in rare form and uh, <laughs> there is this white van on the curb. Guy sticks his head out the window, says, hey, anyone need a free ride? Which if I'm not in the condition that I'm in, the whole thing looks suspicious. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I need a free ride. I go back inside, I, I get my teammates, we load up in the van, they take us to the next spot. And they do so for the rest of the evening. In fact, they did so all week, just giving us free ride from place to place. They provided free breakfast on the beach and a barbecue in the evening. And we took full advantage of it. By the end of the week, we would discover that they were Christian students from Eastern Michigan University. And they were down there serving reckless college students like me. By the time I got home, everyone wanted to know, hey, what was spring break like? And all my favorite memories, my favorite moments were when I was with these students, when I was sober and I was actually having good, clean fun. And there in DeKalb, Illinois, off of Fotis Drive, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That, that's how I came into the faith. And I say all that because I wonder what it was like for these individuals leading up to this missions trip. I mean, anyone who's had to raise money or go on a mission trips know that it, it takes a little bit of vulnerability. You have to put yourself out there. And I can only imagine some of the awkward conversations that they had with people. I can only imagine that because these were college kids, which means they were broke. So someone else had to pay for the trip, which means they had to sit down with their uncles and their aunties and people in their life and say, hey, would you fund this? And I'm guessing some people fired back. So you're telling me you want me to pay for you to go to spring break in Florida so you can hang out on a beach with all these other college students and have the time of your life and you want to call that a missions trip. <laughs> and I'm guessing some people declined. But my goodness, I'm so glad some people said yes. I, I'm just so glad someone said, hey, I'll invest into that idea. And I've spent the last 20 years trying to track down this group of people and I can't find them. I, from my best guesstimation, is a group called Crew that was at the school and leaders have all moved on, students have all moved on. But I just get the feeling still to this day, 
There are people out there who wrote a check and students who showed up in a white van on a curb who have no idea the impact that they had, who have no idea that every single week I get to stand before thousands of people and declare Christ crucified, resurrected from the grave. I love that. And so ever since, my entire ministry has been marked by trying to do for others what others have done for me. And guys, at the end of the day, I just want us as a church to always just lean in with reckless abandon and an unyielding, bleeding heart for the world around us. And I want to see as many people, no matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we will do anything and everything short of sin to reach people who are far from Christ. Amen. That is, that is my prayer. And that is really what aligned my heart with Pastor Steve's heart to hear the 44-year legacy of this wonderful church. And when Pastor Steve told me that over the phone, hey, we'll do anything short of sin to reach people far from Christ, I said, hey, I'm there as well. And to be honest with you, I don't really know what the future of our ministry fully looks like. I still find myself every single week standing in a space like this thinking, I cannot believe this is our church. Which I get the same feeling you have similar thoughts. I cannot believe this is our pastor, right? <laughs> Nationwide search, and this is who you came up with. <laughs> I've never led a church this large. You've never had a pastor this young. But here we are, right? And for whatever reason, this brilliant, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God has all of us intersecting at the same time for such a time as this. And I'm just so excited to see how it flushes out. And I know that this staff and the leaders within this church just possess an unyielding heart to reach people from Christ. Because this was the tension in Jesus' ministry. It was surrounding his ministry, not his theology. And so Jesus would sum it up and he'd say, guys, do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. You see, what you find in Scripture is not Scripture rebuking judgment. You have to make judgments in this life. You have to think critically. What Jesus is saying is you have to learn to judge with greater accuracy. And if you're not careful, you will be duped. And you will look at things on the surface rather than seeing things with greater depth. Another way of saying it is I believe most people have eyesight, yet most people lack insight. How can we just think more critically and become people of substance who are not tossed to and fro by the different things surrounding us in the world that we're living in? He's saying, hey, this is going to be a challenge for every single one of us. And so the tension and the theme of John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 is judgment. Which aren't you excited that you showed up to church to hear a message on judgment? I mean, that feels like a wet blanket, which I always say being a pastor, it kind of comes with the gig. It's like telling someone, hey, I'm a pastor is like saying, hey, I'm a cannibal. Do you want to go to lunch? It's just, it's a bit of a turnoff. But here's the deal. I think if you lean into this conversation, I think as a church, we can, we can move the chains. 
Maybe we can even set some people free. And personally, we can experience God's work in our life. So in this tension of inaccurate judgment, chapter 8 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law, Moses, commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, because there's a certain level of wisdom you can only gain with life experience. It says those who lived the longest chose the wisest. And it says the oldest ones first, until only Jesus, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now, go now and leave your life of sin. I mean, this is a loaded passage. Jesus is teaching and in comes this group of self-righteous religious Pharisees. And they are dragging a woman who just was caught in adultery, not even clothed, and they throw her into the middle of the crowd, ostracized, humiliated, and ashamed. And they're doing so to trap Jesus. I mean, the tension and, if we're honest, even the ickiness that you feel when you read a passage like this. I mean, it takes two to commit adultery. Where's the other guy? And it's just, it's just a sad situation. And guys, I am really, I'm really big. You will hear me encourage you on this often. Pay attention to the patterns in Scripture. You have to pay attention to the patterns because what you find is there are all these patterns that you and I can pattern ourselves after. So when you see Jesus do something, you know, pay attention because when you and I graph those same behaviors into our lives, we take on his effectiveness, his character, and his likeliness. So track with me. The first thing, and what I love about this, is Jesus, he stoops. Twice it says Jesus stooped. Jesus stooped. I love that. I don't know about you, but do you ever find yourself just inspired and amazed by people? I, I just find myself just watching individuals from afar and just inspired by their level of achievement, by their ability and their talent. All around the world, you have people overcoming odds and excelling and achieving some great feat at extremely high levels in their industry or whatever their field may be. I mean, have you ever been impressed by the ascent of man or the ascent of woman? It's amazing 
how high people can soar. But guys, what's most impressive isn't how high people can soar, but how low our God was willing to stoop. I mean, can, have you ever thought about it? I mean, he's willing to stoop so low. Our God leaves perfection for our potential. And as an infant goes on a mission trip to rescue and redeem every single one of us, leaves perfection also that he can step into our dirty shoes. Also, he can become like us in hopes that we may accept the invitation to become like him. He stoops so low. Is that not amazing? I don't know if this is true for you, but this is definitely true in my life, and I find it true to be in Scripture. Jesus stooped for the stupid. I love it because I can't fit into the category of perfect people, but I can fit into this category. I've made some mistakes in my life. Another way of saying it is God is magnetic to the pathetic. I mean, there's something about this God of ours that he just leans in to broken people and you look cute and dressed up and you look like you have it all together. But behind that facade, every single one of us has an issue of brokenness. And every single one of us carries things within our lives that need the redemption of God and the grace of his work in our life, amen? And he stoops, he stoops. In fact, after the resurrection, It says before he would come, actually, with the resurrection, I mean, he even descended to hell, snatched the keys and defanged death. I mean, there's no depth too low that is outside the reach of our God. He stoops. In addition to that, Jesus, he stands. He stands in the gap. And and here this woman who's caught in a pretty embarrassing situation, made a poor decision, and Jesus stands in the gap publicly with her. Anyone just thankful for a God who stands in the gap? Here's what you find all throughout Scripture. Jesus was willing to be looked down upon in order to lift others up. I'm just telling you, if you love like Jesus, just know a life of love attracts a lot of hate. A life of love, it attracts a lot of hate. And Jesus was willing to be looked down upon in order to lift others up. And my question is, is what would it look like in your life if you allowed God to break your heart for the things that break his heart? And you allowed yourself to just love well and courageously. And you stood in the gap for people who need this Jesus the same way you need this Jesus. He stands. I remember when I was a youth pastor, early on in my ministry, I wasn't aware of some of these tensions. And then one day, a family in our church, the mom reaches out to me. I had a couple kids in my youth ministry and their mom reached out and their dad had gone off the grid. Been missing for a few days and he was an addict and relapsed and wasn't answering anyone's phone calls and no one knew where he was at. And so for about five or six days, he was, he was gone. And then one day while I was at the office, I receive a call from this individual. He lets me know that he's just down the street at an Applebee's. So I drive down the street and I, and I go to this Applebee's and there he is sitting at the bar, intoxicated and in rare form. 
So I go and I pull up a seat, order a glass of water, and we just begin this conversation. Eventually he agrees to let me drive him home and we go sit in the living room, me, him, and his wife. And we just begin to have this really heartbreaking conversation. He then agrees to go to rehab and that week I would be able to drive him to rehab and serve as a sponsor. But when I got back to the office, what I was not expecting was to be pulled in by my pastor. It was like, hey, we, we have an issue. Some people seen you sitting at the bar. <laughs> and they're really upset. And they feel like it was just really poor decision for a pastor to be sitting at the bar. This is the first time I bumped into this tension. And it's so hard because the, the temptation is I want to call and explain to them, hey, this man was relapsed and this man has to go to rehab and he's about to lose his marriage. But the tension is I would rather them think less of me than to air out this guy's dirty laundry. If they only knew the heartbreak that this family's going through. Guys, I'm just telling you, if we're going to live really in the footsteps of Christ, sharing his character, his likeliness, and his heart for the world, there are going to come times where we're going to have to be willing to be looked down upon in order to lift others up. Jesus stooped. Jesus stands. And lastly, uh, not lastly, thirdly, Jesus, guys, he stays. I, I mean, he stays. I love that statement, and they all left until there was only Jesus. And you should know our God will never abandon anyone. He stays. I think if you want to discover who your true friends are, make a mistake. And just watch the group move. You make a mistake, and you'll find out who your true friends are. The phony ones will run, but the real ones, they lean in. And Jesus, he stays. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And even when you are at your worst, he remains committed to be at his best. He stays. Church, he stays. I'm an old soul. I, I love the hymns. They were critical early on in my discipleship. I learned most of my theology reading scripture and listening to hymns. And I love the song. What a friend. My goodness. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins are his to bear. He stoops, he stands, and he stays. And lastly, church, Jesus states. Hey, go and leave your life of sin. And here's the thing, every single one of us, and you can sense it a lot of times when we gather in churches. I mean, there's part of us that we want to hear a preacher let others have it. Let them have it. Call them out, right? We love that. Let's get to the part where you stay, hey, leave your life of sin, but know this. And know this in your own life when it comes to managing your own influence into other people's lives. Until you stoop, until you stand, and until you stay, you're not going to get a chance to state at least effectively. I'm just telling you, if you really want to have an impact on someone's life, don't jump the gun on stating what you feel in your heart. Show them that you truly care and stoop and stay and stand and maybe they'll open their heart so you can state, hey, you should, 
You should leave your life of sin. What's amazing is the Pharisees leave, they all walk away, and there's no doubt they assumed the worst about Jesus. This didn't resolve the issue for them. They were still after him. And their assumption was Jesus was compromising because they didn't get to hear the conversation Jesus had with this woman. And guys, know this, acceptance and approval are not the same thing. That's what makes grace so amazing because it saves a wretch like me that God accepts me, loves me, and is for you, and you belong to the kingdom. But that doesn't say that God endorses the brokenness of our lives. Acceptance and approval are not the same thing. And so if we're not careful, we can fall into the same thing the Pharisees fall into, and that is this. It is easy to misinterpret compassion as compromise. It's just really easy to misinterpret compassion as compromise. And Jesus He waits till everyone leaves because he recognizes, hey, some things are best addressed in private. I love our Savior because he's such a gentleman. He didn't come to make a spectacle out of people, but he did come to accomplish something special within people. Anyone thankful for that? He didn't come to make a spectacle, but to do something special. Guys, my question for you is this. Who... Are you in this story? I mean, who are you in this story? And for many of us, we can relate to Jesus. We all know what it's like to to have unfair criticism projected our way. We all know what it's like to have malicious slander thrown upon us. We all know what it's like to endure some of those things. What's amazing to me, you guys, is Jesus was perfect. I mean, this guy never made a mistake, never fell into sin, never came up short. He was perfect. In other words, there was only good. There was only good in this Jesus. Yet they still hated this Jesus. And some of you, you've been the recipient of unfair criticism. And just know this, guys. If people were wrong about Jesus... They're going to be wrong about you. If people were wrong about Jesus, they're going to be wrong about you. Some of us can relate to Jesus at times. But here's the deal. Sometimes we can draw too close of a parallel between us and Jesus. You ever found that's our tendency? I think when you read scripture, you have to read yourself into the story. But sometimes we have to be careful because for whatever reason, we always make ourselves the hero of every story. It's like my kids. I, I don't know about you, but have you ever been shopping for a superhero toy and thought about getting one of them a villain? It's like, I know you like Iron Man, but right now you're a little bit more like Thanos. <laughs> right? Like, I, I just think sometimes we, okay, so there's a form of biblical study called exegesis. An exegetical study, it is looking critically verse by verse and digging deeper into Scripture. And I think emerging within the community of faith is what I would call a narcissist approach to Scripture. Where we read Scripture in a very self-centered way, putting ourselves as the hero of every story. It makes me think of like doppelgangers. Anyone have a celebrity look like? What's amazing to me is most people would agree who your celebrity look like is except you. We're all kind of in denial about it. Like, I hope people would say, this is who you look like. (laughs) That's what I'm hoping for. If 
but in all reality, I know. I look more like Doogie Howser. I'm closer to him uh, than I am to Justin Timberlake. And we're closer to the Pharisees than we are to Jesus. That, that would be the next group of people. Maybe some of us, if not all of us, at times in our journey can relate to being the Pharisees. See, what happens is, is we succumb to self-righteousness if we're not careful. And here's how we become a Pharisee. And this is going to be a tension that every single one of us is going to have to figure out at times. You become a Pharisee and you give root to pharisaical tendencies when you become overzealous in a very specific area in your faith. For these individuals, they were obsessed over the Sabbath. And so I always caution people, hey, do a deep dive and be passionate and be fervent in your faith, but be careful you don't lack balance to where you are really passionate and obsessed and devoted and narrow focused on this one issue. And then you don't apply the same approach to all the other areas in your faith because you'll lack balance. And before you know it, you take on a Pharisee's mentality. I think maybe we should do an entire series on the Pharisees. We could call it getting a Pharisectomy. <laughs> no? I think it could work. But what you find is within their minds, they knew their brokenness. And their assumption was, hey, I can manage my brokenness. I just don't believe others can manage theirs. It's rooted in pride. A Pharisee thinks, I can manage my sin. I just don't believe others can manage theirs. And guys, this is where we as believers fall into hypocrisy. And this is where we just have to be really, really careful. Jesus says, hey, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They all start to realize, I've got some stuff in my life. In fact, maybe just maybe the only difference between you and those you're judging is they just sin differently than you. They just sin differently than you. So there's Jesus, there's the Pharisees, and lastly, there's the woman, which guys, if you put all of them on a spectrum, there's Jesus, there's the Pharisee, and there's the woman. If there's anyone we most relate to, and I know you're not gonna like this, but if there's anyone we have the most in common with, it's this woman who Jesus stands in the gap where they're about to stone her to death. And at some point you discover this Jesus of ours, he stood in the gap for you and I. And he marched his way to the cross and he was hung naked and pierced on a cross for you and I. And he absorbed every ounce of the world's hate and every ounce of God's wrath. And here's the brilliance, get this guys. On the cross, our Jesus punished sin and preserved the sinner. I mean, it's amazing. I don't know how he does it, and my, my vocabulary is way too limited to articulate and explain it well. But somehow on the cross, our Savior doesn't wink at sin. He punishes it and somehow preserves the sinner. Guys, we're a lot more like this woman than you think. That when the rubber hits the road and push comes to shove and eternity hangs in the balance, our Savior stands in the gap and absorbs the penalty of death on our behalf. You see, when you look at this woman, you start to realize, I've got some brokenness in my life too. And what you discover is relating is the key to deflating. 
So when you start to realize, oh, they're just a broken individual like me. They're just another person who needs this wonderful grace found in Jesus Christ. And suddenly you pop the balloon of self-righteousness in your life. And it just deflates the more you relate. Guys, there are no perfect people in heaven. There are only forgiven people in heaven. There are no perfect people in heaven. There are only forgiven people. Jesus said, hey, I didn't come for the healthy and the well. I came for the sick and those who need a doctor. In other words, Jesus came for people with self-awareness, not self-righteousness. And guys, I just think we will see God be lifted up, our lives transform, our community impacted. If we can be a community of faith that just chooses to drop our rocks and to love well, because our responsibility is to love people. God's responsibility is to fix people. Our responsibility is to love people. God's responsibility is to fix people. And at the end of the day, we can have influence over each other, but at the end of the day, there's only one person who can truly change your life. And if we can get out of each other's way so each one of us can encounter Christ at a deeper level, I just believe amazing things will happen. That's why I love my favorite song is Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, I'm washed in his blood. My favorite part of the song, it says, and this is my story. This is my song, praising my savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. And what, could, what would happen if we were a community of faith, where we got out of the way and we dropped our rocks so people could hear echoes of mercy and at their lowest moment, whispers of love? Wouldn't that be precious?